today's episode of the Health Tree Podcast for Multiple Myeloma, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Cario Farm, for their support of this program. Now, before our show this morning, I'd like to let you know that we will be launching what we call Health Tree 2.0 on October 23rd. When we started this, and this podcast is actually exactly 10 years old, um, we, I, I wondered how can patients help accelerate a myeloma cure? How can we contribute for these amazing researchers, one of which you will hear from today? And over the last 10 years, we've built over 14 software tools to do precisely that. So we have an education pillar of tools that include this podcast and our news website, our Heltry University, our roundtables. And we have a pillar of, uh, our second pillar of programs is community building. So we connect you to each other. So you can use our Healthry Connect social media network or find a myeloma coach or um, we'll have a growing number of regional communities that you can help um, volunteer for in the future. And then the third is our, our the third pillar is our Health Tree Cure Hub data portal. And that's really where we want to invite you to help participate and help these researchers accelerate a cure faster because when we share our myeloma stories and the investigators are able to do surveys and studies and data research using our real-world evidence, we get closer to that cure. So we are super excited to be able to share that with you. Look for that live and virtual event, um, mostly virtual event, uh, on October 23rd, and please go ahead and register for that. Now, on to our show. Dr. Paul Richardson, you have been so kind to participate in this mid-year review. We're a little past the mid-year review because we had technical challenges last time. But to help us understand the many advances that are being made in myeloma, and we do this type of review twice a year because there's so much happening. So, Dr. Richardson, welcome to the program. Jennifer, it's an absolute pleasure and, and always wonderful to connect with you and have the opportunity to share some of the excitement around important recent advances over the last six months or so in myeloma, um, which, as you point out, Jen, they just keep coming, which is uh, so wonderful mm-hmm. to see, but also tempered by you know the, the reality that we've got lots of work to do, and whilst progress is made, uh, you know again, the, the challenges, as you and I have discussed before, remain very real. Yeah, very much so. Well, let me give a short introduction for you before we get started because we have a lot to talk about. And be thinking of questions that you want to ask at the end, and we will open it up for caller questions at the end. So Dr. Paul Richardson is R.J. Corman Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the attending physician of the Division of Hematologic Oncology and the Multiple Myeloma and Bone Marrow Transplant Service at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dr. Richardson is a clinical program leader and director of clinical research for the Jerome Lipper Multiple Myeloma Center at Dana-Farber. He's also the chairman of the Multiple Myeloma Committee for the Alliance and Alliance Foundation for Clinical Trials and the Myeloma Steering Committee member of the National Cancer Institute. He is editorial board member for publications like Clinical Cancer Research, Journal of Clinical Oncology, Journal of Oncology, and many, many others. And is a distinguished myeloma specialist who is highly influential in the new drug approval process, having led many phase three clinical trial efforts to get many of the drugs that you're familiar with, bortezomib, and um, many immunotherapies, daratumumab, carfilzomib, Zelenex, or you've heard of these drugs, and maybe use them um, to, to market. So we're so appreciative for his efforts there. He has received the Ernest Butler Lecture and Prize from the American Society of Hematology, 
for his translational advances and achievements in enabling clinical science in myeloma, and he's also recognized and appreciated by the patient advocacy community as the recipient of the Robert A. Kyle Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Myeloma Foundation for his work that's resulted in significant advances in research, treatment, and the care of myeloma patients around the world. So we will, Dr. Richardson, thanks again, and we will just jump in. Um, Maybe we just want to start in kind of how a patient moves through their myeloma journey because there's a lot to keep updated. So in the newly diagnosed myeloma setting, uh, what are the changes that you're seeing? Are we going from triplets to quad therapies for newly diagnosed patients? Well, Jennifer, thank you for that lovely introduction. Just uh, just a one little quick, if I may, I finished my 10-year term as the Alliance Chair. I just want to acknowledge uh, my the new chairman, Dr. Oh, Sardis Marty, who took over uh, in that important role uh, uh, about a year ago or so. And so, so having, um, you know, and, and obviously doing great things. And during that time, actually, obviously, we, we did, uh, during my 10 years there, we obviously saw the determination trial come through, um, the CLGB 100-104 um, uh, lenalidomide maintenance trial, which to many of our listeners, um, it was actually the platform for the FDA approval of lenalidomide maintenance. So I'm very kind of um, grateful to my alliance colleagues for that, and in particular, Dr. Phil McCarthy, because we, we ran that trial, started that trial way back uh, in, a, in around 2005. And what's so beautiful is that I have patients still on that study. And we are now, where are we, 2023? Mm. It's amazing. So, so it points mm-hmm. to the real progress been made. And in addition to determination, which we can touch on in a minute, um, uh, with the leadership of people, he's uh, and and uh, the, the Alliance team during, uh, you know, about uh, now, about eight years ago, nine years ago, we started the Griffin study. And it's so relevant to just what you asked, because the Griffin study, which we were very um, uh, grateful to be partnered with a fantastic team at Janssen, we were able to do a um, large randomized phase two trial to document clearly um, that um, we um, the addition of daratumumab to RVD, which is our, our, our workhorse, as you know, um, uh, really was amazing in terms of results. And so the Griffin study laid the stage for now quadruplets with a combination of RVD plus daratumumab. Um, and um, for a randomized phase two run from an intergroup study, you know, the alliance with AFT support and Janssen partnership, which was absolutely key to be uh, very clear, um, we were able to generate so much information. So so RVD DARA has become, you know, a gold standard, of, if you will, in the upfront setting, recognizing that phase three trials are still cooking, but this large phase two provided a breakthrough to uh, insurers and to provide access for our patients to the importance of a quadruple therapy. So to kind of share for the patients uh, on the call today the sort of rationale, the idea is that obviously if lenalidomide, which is a you know, fabulous drug we've worked over the last 20-plus years on, uh, is our Navy and bortezomib is our Air Force and dexamethasone is our army, daratumumab becomes, you know, the Marines. And the addition of the um, Army, Navy, and Air Force to, with the Marines has been a game changer. And, of course, we, we mustn't forget the Coast Guard of zolendronic acid and drugs like it. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. um, sort of quadruplet approach plus the fifth drug of anti-resorptive therapy, upfront treatment for patients has been transformed. And the big question is, 
you know, how much does, 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 does transplant add to this? And I think that that in the transplant eligible group has been very uh, important. And uh, one of the most interesting uh, uh, aspects of all of this is the evolving space. And I want to especially acknowledge my colleague, Dr. Hani Hassoun, who presented again uh, from the Alliance platform our results from determination in subgroups uh, at the European Bone Marrow Transplant Meeting in uh, Paris earlier this year. And what Honey showed, which was quite remarkable, is that whilst transplant in younger uh, eligible patients clearly results in progression-free survival benefit, we don't see with long, longer-term follow-up overall survival benefit yet. We may, but not yet. But most importantly, what we see are subgroup benefits. So in specific subgroups do particularly well. And most importantly, some groups actually don't benefit from early transplants. So this was really very important data, and what Honey showed was the fact that certain high-risk patients, particularly those who may have 414 as a cytogenetic abnormality, may benefit from early transplant in terms of progression-free survival gain. But interestingly, patients um, uh, with standard risk and or, for example, a higher body mass index uh, may get less benefit from early transplant. And what was so interesting, Jen, is that he sort of drill down deeper on our work regarding um, ethnicity and race. And what we've identified in our African-American patients is that actually for African-American patients, for actually reasons of pathobiology, the access, the free medicines, everything was equal in determination. So we were able to ensure excellent access and we had 20% participation or close to, it was actually 19, 18, 19% participation from our African-American patients. And because of that wonderful participation, we were able to ascertain that in fact in the African-American population, early transplant, particularly for people who have higher BMI, um, may actually be not associated with the benefit that we would have expected. Uh, and it points, I think, to a pathobiologic mechanism that we're hoping to better understand. And my colleague, Jeff Sonder, and other uh, colleagues from the determination team are hopefully going to be presenting, we hope, breakthrough data on this at the ASH meeting coming up in San Diego in December. So more to follow, but real excitement about, you know, choices for patients that you don't necessarily have to have one size fits all um, and that quadruplets are really making a difference. And I would be remiss in not acknowledging the incredibly good work of um, investigators such as Ola Langren who've looked at carfilzomib-based strategies combined with lenalidomide, dexamethasone, and daratumumab, KRD-DARA, and uh, Ola has specifically identified the success of KRD-DARA as an upfront approach. Uh, and similarly, uh, Luciano de, uh, Costa has led the master trial where we've combined KRD-DARA with transplant and seen that equally to be very promising. But I think what's so exciting about o uh, Ola's data is his very high rates of MRD negativity as a research uh, clue um, pointing to clinical benefit without having to go to transplant, which I think for patients is a wonderful choice to potentially consider, recognizing that clearly high-dose therapy remains a standard of care for the younger patient with myeloma, but the point is that you have choices, and I think for patients going forward, that's absolutely key. Well, absolutely, and I love what you're saying about personalizing care also from the beginning. So, um, because what you're saying is we can subgroup patients and not everybody has to be treated in the same way. And, and personalized medicine doesn't necessarily need to be all genetics-based. We can look at other things like race or, or body weight or things like that and decide. I think that's so fascinating. Can I ask about the, a further question about just per – oh, go ahead. 
Well, Jen, I was just going to say, before we dive into that, I think you've raised such an important point because multiple myeloma is truly multiple myeloma. And I think you're so right, mm-hmm. Jen. Subgroups really matter. And what we're learning is that these have real you know, pathobiologic correlates. So one obvious example is age. And as we talk about upfront therapy, I think it's important just to acknowledge incredibly important advances for older patients too, because what we've realized is that, you know, you've got three drug platforms like lenalidomide, dexamethasone, and daratumumab, the so-called um, RD-DARA, um, that performs extremely well in older patients. But what's also equally important is that we're also looking at the quadruplet of, for example, RVD plus DARA, but with the RVD adjusted for the older patients so that it's better tolerated. And exploring that as an exciting option for patients is really very interesting because there are a number of trials that are looking to sort of tease this out better. But my point simply is that in the old days, you used to be thinking, as you say, of one size fits all. You know, if you're transplant eligible, that's the way to go. If you're not, we look at other things. We're getting much more sophisticated in our approach. And I think age is an important part of that. And I simply emphasize it because it's not just frailty or, or, or perhaps inability to tolerate treatments that are so intensive, but it also points to you know immune uh, uh, exhaustion or absence thereof, and how that may be very important for tailoring treatments to improve outcome. Yeah, Thank absolutely. you, Jen. I'm sorry. And, yeah. No, no, no. It's such an important point, and and this goes to something that I always say in every show, almost, is this is why you need a myeloma specialist on your team because. If you are um, making decisions, therapy decisions at the beginning of your treatment or at relapse and the person treating you does not understand all these different nuances or how things could be adjusted, um, you are just not going to do as well and you won't have as high a quality of life. So I always suggest the patients try to consult with a myeloma specialist as they're making treatment decisions and then fine, you know, get your infusion at home. But um, that's just such an important point that I want to make. Uh, okay, let's talk about personalizing care a little bit more. Um, you mentioned the, in the transplant idea about high-risk patients with maybe 414 patients doing better with transplant, but for other higher-risk patients, are there other approaches that you're seeing either in clinical trials or just right off the bat, if you see a high-risk patient, younger or older, um, you know, what's your go-to strategy in trying to manage that? In, I, I'm, so, I'm so sorry, Jen. So, so in terms of uh, uh, you're, you're speaking of high risk, you mean, correct? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Are there other approaches beyond that transplant approach that that you would look at for high risk patients? Yes, no, absolutely. Well, I think importantly, the thing about risk is to understand its complexity, Jen. Um, we're realizing again from determination, we learned that uh, there's many nuances to what high risk means. Uh, And this field is constantly evolving. For example, 1Q amplification or significant gain is now recognized as a a higher risk factor. We've also recognized that there are differences between the implications of 17P deletion and actually partner abnormalities with it, as well as, say, for example, translocation 414. So I think there are um, a lot of uh, nuances to interpreting risk, which I think is a first important point to share with our audience. I think what we've learned from recent data in terms of high risk is that we have in our armamentarium some very exciting drugs. Uh, Obviously, we've had the revolution of immune therapy um, with, of course, CAR-T 
being dramatically uh, impressive in the relapse setting. And we also have um, bispecifics making uh, a tremendous splash uh, in the relapse place as well. Um, I think what's important to recognize, though, is that there are other small molecules, not in the cellular or, or, or T-cell redirection space, which may be very valid in the high-risk setting. And for example, um, Selenexor, which is an XPO1 inhibitor, an oral agent, is one very good example of that, which targets 17P deletion quite specifically in the way that it works. And the clinical data support that, as well as the laboratory studies that have been done. I think beyond that, we also, of course, have you know, our currently uh, available agents with different aspects to their activity, but carfilzomib is a very potent uh, um, high-risk high adapted proteasome inhibitor, and so is bortezomib in its own right too, um, but exazomib also seems to target 17P in the frailer patient for whom an oral approach may be preferable. Um, and in the same token, um, in the uh, space of antibodies, it's very clear that you know, the monoclonal antibody isatuximab, for example, is particularly useful at targeting um, 1Q amplification, really breakthrough data mm -hmm. from the ACAMA trial um, led by Dr. Mm -hmm. Philippe Moreau uh, establishing that. So I think there's a variety of options that we have to take on high risk. And again, um, Jen, this sort of pivots back to our previous point that we're able to tailor to patient need. And, and certainly from the point of view of a younger patient who's transplant eligible, clearly in, in a variety of trials, not just determination but in others, we've shown that higher risk patients do benefit, um, it appears, from early intensification. Um, I think what's important, though, is to note that many, much of this data doesn't necessarily reflect the impact of quadruplet therapies and what they may be doing. So we just have to bear that in mind. But having said all of that, we've got good options for our patients, and I think the um, promise of the cellular therapies in particular being used early, to my mind anyway, is, is, is a very attractive and exciting new avenue of research. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're definitely going to talk about that in a little bit. I want to ask you a couple more questions before we get to that. So minimal residual disease testing is kind of gaining in popularity to potentially even become a new clinical trial endpoint. Um, are you, how are you using MRD testing to manage treatment after, you know, first set of therapies or your first line therapies and then at relapse? It's a super question. Um, I think that MRD clearly is such a useful tool in the setting of research. I think, um, Jen, what we have to be a little bit careful about is how we interpret its use uh, in the clinical um, space as standard of care. And I think there's definitely a role, in my opinion, um, for its use in adjudicating um, decisions around particular approaches. For example, again, just pivoting back to the uh, determination trial, we showed that MRD negativity was associated with better outcome regardless of what you did, um, whether you had a full uh, in induction remission strategy with early transplant or you delayed it. If you're MRD negative, patients appear to do really well regardless. So this is an important principle that MRD may go, help guide treatment choices. Um, but I, I, and I, and other, and I want to emphasize other trials um, led by uh, really outstanding investigators have shown similar responses, uh, sorry, similar outcomes as well. Uh, I think MRD therefore has, has great utility in the research space, no question. In the clinical uh, standard of care space, I think the one caution I would have about it is the importance of being sustained. In other words, just one MRD measurement 
alone, um, be it positive or negative, um, needs to be taken in context. And I think the question of whether or not it's a sustained result, be it positive or negative, is relevant to making treatment choices. And above all, the whole picture has to be taken into account. But I think the uh, role of MRD continues to grow. I personally see it as a, as a remarkable step forward uh, and a very important tool in our armamentarium to tailor therapy. Um, so more to follow, but certainly something that may help guide uh, treatment choices. And one thing I would say, Jen, is it's very useful, in my opinion, after induction remission therapy uh, in newly diagnosed patients. Um, its value later when we're dealing with relapse and, and a slightly more unstable situation in terms of, uh, of, of clonal evolution and so on of the disease. Um, there, one has to perhaps use it a little bit more judiciously because, as you and I have talked about before, Jen, you can see MRD negativity after CAR-T, for example, um, that can be very reassuring initially, but then actually, unfortunately, not be associated with, you know, may not be that stable. It may actually not last very long, uh, whereas in other settings, MRD and negativity can be much more sustained. So I think it's a complex, uh, complex equation, but one that is very exciting to have the ability to, to use in the appropriate setting. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And uh, for people who aren't aware, MRD testing is just a more sensitive way of testing the monoclonal protein after treatment. Well, let's talk about also personalizing care when it comes to 1114 no. myeloma, because that's the only, only type of no. myeloma that has a specific drug. Um, do you think about using venetoclax early on, or do you kind of have patients with 1114 go through their first therapy and then use it later, or what's your strategy there? That's a super question. Jen, I just want to clarify one thing on MRD, just to realize it is also a look at the level of, of the cell. That's the key, right? It's not just a okay. look at the monoclonal. It's a look at the level of the cellular activity of the disease. So we have currently complete response, stringent complete response. And then when we drill down to MRD negativity, it's times 10 to the minus 5 or times 10 to the minus 6. So ability to detect disease at a cellular level. And we either use this highly sophisticated flow cytometric method, which we christen Euroflow, or next generation sequencing, which is built by adaptive technologies. And I think they both have great value, but certainly in the U.S adaptive technologies is a very strong uh, uh, um, it, it, it has a very strong presence in this area and, and has proven to be very very helpful in certainly in our clinical trials but just to clarify that for the audience because um, you know again it, it complements the assessment of protein but you're quite right there is another entity um, which is called heavy chain assay which actually is a very tighter drill down on protein and that's a, a research tool that's developing very quickly or heavy light it's called for short in any event pivoting back to your other question, which is absolutely spot on, about whether or not to use venetoclax in translocation 1114, I would agree with you um, very much about the um, uh, um, uh, uh, role of venetoclax in this setting. You, you, you raised it so nicely before, Jen. It's, it's all about subgroups. And the point is that this particular genetic subgroup of myeloma, 1114, it means that for patients, it means that in your disease, you have the translocation. It's not obviously in you as a person, but it's in your myeloma that you have this mm -hmm. translocation of um, these chromosomes. And what that means is it translates to a particular series of events within the tumor cell that can be interfered with by this remarkable 
oral agent venetoclax. Um, and what's so interesting is that in 1114 disease, particularly in relapse, it's particularly helpful. Unfortunately, it's not yet FDA approved, although I'm hopeful that may change relatively soon, but it is FDA approved for other cancers, so we're able to use it off-label. Um, what's so interesting, Jen, is that if you use it, if you use venetoclax in a non-1114 translocated patient, i.e. their disease does not have it, the outcomes can actually be not not nearly as good and in fact deleterious, which is why I think in fairness to FDA, they've been very careful with the approval here because obviously we've got to be very clear it belongs to the 1114 patients. And you asked, I think, a key question, you know, should we be using it earlier? I think certainly in first relapse it's justified. Upfront is probably still the realm of protocol-directed treatment uh, at the moment because obviously upfront studies to date um, have, 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 have not been deployed and or read out, although I do think um, in early relapse it makes sense to deploy uh, a very straightforward oral agent that works really well in my experience, uh, although one does have to be careful about infections and blood counts um, when you're administering the therapy. Mm -hmm. Okay, wonderful. Well, you mentioned uh, first relapse, and so let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, what strategies do you look to uh, for first relapse? And then we'll maybe talk about earlier use of CAR-T. Yes. Well, I think in, in early relapse, it's a lovely question, Jen. I think in earlier relapse, obviously what's so interesting, and it's an evolving treatment landscape, um, as the quadruplets have become so effective in the early uh, a treatment setting, um, when we now look to first relapse and second-line therapy, we're having to think in terms of treatments that our patients previously would have embarked upon much later in their natural course of their disease. Um, now, the, the good news here is that if you've had upfront treatment, especially with either a triplet or a quadruplet, the likelihood is, um, with or without transplant, your, your disease control will be a number of years, hopefully many years. Then when you relapse, um, the question will be, what do you deploy? And typically what we use are a variety of drugs that may recapitulate some of what you've had in terms of drug class, but importantly be different. So, for example, if bortezomib has been used up front, the use of carfilzomib in first relapse makes sense and vice versa. If, if carfilzomib has been used early, the use of a proteasome inhibitor like bortezomib, but rationally combined with something else, um, which enhances a response. So one thing that's clearly happening is that we are using proteasome inhibitors uh, immunomodulators and next generation approaches in early relapse, but what has arrived that's made such a difference in this um, you know, first relapse space has been the impact of BCMA targeting therapy. And of course, in that regard, probably the, the news since our last uh, uh, podcast together, Jen, has been the excitement around CAR-T therapy as exemplified by CARTITUDE 4, which was presented as a plenary session at ASCO in June and then published in the New England Journal um, almost simultaneously. Um, and showed that the use of CAR-T in first relapse for younger fit patients who were eligible for this approach um, really resulted in unprecedented disease control compared to standard approaches that were used for um, the, the control group. And recognizing for those patients who participate in the control group, they could obviously have access to CAR-T at a later date. So um, really exciting data, but I think it heralds really a new way of thinking about early relapse, which is how do we integrate BCMA-adapted strategies or targeted strategies in those patients. And I had the opportunity to sit in that ASCO session, and it was incredible. The data was un really so impressive, really unbelievable. So 
when you look at, I know that these companies, um, Bristol Myers Squibb and Janssen Oncology, are looking for earlier approval in these one to three lines based on some of this data. Is that? Um, do you think it's more effective because the patient's T cells are fitter, or what do you think is the reason for? Or the disease is just not as sophisticated by that point because you're using it earlier lines. What what do you think is the reason for the better impact? Well, I think all of the above, right? I think that, you know, as you so nicely framed it, Jen, I think patients are, are better able to tolerate the platform, which is important, and I think also their immune exhaustion may be that much less, and therefore this may be very powerful. But I, I think there are some important caveats. I think obviously we know that targeting BCMA with CAR-T therapy is highly effective in the majority of patients, but we also have to be aware that there is a side effect profile, and sometimes, rarely fortunately, but sometimes it can be really quite serious. So I think there are, there are, there's a lot of work to do to continue to sort of show the reproducibility of this approach in earlier disease, um, but I think you're absolutely right, uh, Jen. You know, this heralds a new era, and I think that um, as we make CAR-T therapy more available, which I think is another key point, uh, more accessible, and at the same time that much safer, um, it will, uh, I think, hopefully bear tremendous fruit going forward. But I, I think we would be um, mistaken in saying, you know, it's the only thing, because at the end of the day, obviously CAR-T, it isn't, right? I mean, there are many other options mm -hmm, for patients. Right, people, and patients I think that, relapse and... Mm -hmm. Well, well, not just that. I, I think it's, it's, it's um, you know, we have to remember the median age of myeloma is 70 uh, in terms of its onset. Um, you know, my practice has many uh, patients in their 80s and early 90s. You know, clearly an intensive approach such as Siltacel may, may really be not wise in such a, a, an older, frailer population until we know much more, particularly about the central nervous system toxicity. And at the same time, um, you know, the ability to use other approaches because as you and I have said before, Jen, together, treating multiple myeloma is truly a marathon. It is not a sprint. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, what we do early uh, may really impact on uh, what we do um, uh, 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 late. So I think we need to be careful. But I also think, having said that, you're quite right that this obviously, the, the other exciting thing in my view in early relapse is going to be bispecifics. I mean, you have the fantastic approvals of um, L-ranatinab this summer as a new BCMA-targeted bispecific T-cell engager um, with this T-cell redirection quality. And what I liked about the L-ranatinab data was, you know, the subcutaneous approach. Um, it may be that much easier um, uh, uh, to therefore give us an outpatient, which is critical for accessibility. And at the same time, it's got every two-week you know, injection times, and th these make life for patients so much better. Um, and at the same time, there may be some differences in infection profiles and, and complication rates, although I think one has to be careful with that. Having said that, the activity is 60 to 70 percent response rate, which is very much along the lines of what was seen with teclistamab, and which is the other big bispecific that's approved for BCMA. And then, of course, to add on to that, we have the approval of talquetamab, which uh, is another bispecific T-cell engager, but importantly for our audience, it targets GPRC5D. Now, please don't 
worry about the long name, but that is a different target than BCMA. It isn't uh, associated with the same BCMA-related toxicities, although it does unfortunately cause skin changes and uh, changes to nails and, and, and some epithelial uh, mucosal surfaces. But I think what's most important is that it is a new target, and again, the data there look very promising, again, around a 70% response rate. So these are really remarkable agents, but again, I, I want to stress, I think we've got lots of other ones, right, Jen, we can talk about, and I'm looking to you to guide me there because uh, obviously we could, uh, we, could, we could spend the whole conversation on bispecifics and CAR-T, but if you'd like to, to touch elsewhere, I'm, I'm very happy to so do. Well, I want to focus on um, just a few follow-up questions, if you don't mind, because it's a, it's a very big <laughs> discussion point. So first, why is BCMA such a great target for multiple myeloma? Well, because B-cell maturation antigen, as the name sounds, is uh, expressed in myeloma uh, almost universally. But it's important to realize that it, it's a downstream marker in the ontogeny of myeloma. So we would be remiss if we said that if you target BCMA, you know, you don't have to worry again. Unfortunately, that's not true. Uh, um, BCMA targeting is highly successful. Uh, and despite the success of the CARTITUDE 4 patients, um, we do know from earlier studies in such as CARTITUDE uh, 2, um, where updated data were, were shown, you know, great results, but at the end of the day, patients still unfortunately are relapsing. And speaking for my own patients who've been through various BCMA CAR-Ts, one of my patients very recently, she had a wonderful experience in terms of tolerability with a different platform. It was a CARS-Gen CAR-T, again, targeting BCMA, um, but she enjoyed three years of remission with it, but then unfortunately has relapsed. But nonetheless, it's been well worth that three years because she's had an excellent quality of life. The important point is what do we do now? So we have to realize, you know, that, that, that these relapses occur. But anyway, pivoting back to your key question, BCMA matters because it's ubiquitous and because it's some, a marker that we realize, like CD38, um, we can exploit accordingly. Um, there are other ways of targeting BCMA, not just by specifics and CAR-T, but also antibody drug conjugates. And in particular, the example here is belantamab mafodotin, um, which provides a very different approach, which we can perhaps talk about in a moment, um, but I think it's important to note that um, BCMA is not only expressed by plasma cells, and that's the problem. Um, it is expressed in the central nervous system, um, and that is very relevant because uh, some of the toxicities that we see, um, particularly the fortunately very rare but very real entity of late Parkinson's, which unfortunately to date hasn't been manageable. It has it's, when it occurs, it's proven generally incurable. Um, this, this is these are the kinds of things we have to be on the lookout for. But I want to stress, fortunately, these types of serious toxicities are very rare now, especially if we use. Um, the platform earlier. So I think um, this bodes well. And of course, I would stress these late onset CNS phenomena are not seen with bispecifics. Um, one of the downsides of the bispecifics in the BCMA space is infection. And that's one of the things we have to be a bit careful about as well. Mm -hmm. And going back to the neuro neurological issues um, with some of the, the BCMA directed CAR T therapies, is there a way of telling the ahead of time? Um, like maybe is it family history or is it that somebody already has a toxicity issue? Is it because um, patients have high tumor burden or what do you think is causing or do we know enough about that yet or have enough data about that? Yeah. 
Yes, it's a super question, Jenna, uh, uh, and I would say to you, definitely we know that higher tumor burden can be an issue, that's for sure. So the better, or the lower the tumor burden of going into CAR-T therapy, the less likelihood of, of, of serious side effects. Um, I think also you're right that there may be you know, vulnerabilities um, related to um, uh, underlying medical issues that may steer us away um, from necessarily targeting BCMA in that way, perhaps looking at GPRC5D or FCRH5 as another receptor target that one might pursue. So I do agree with you. There are opportunities to be more tailored in that regard. Um, but I think we're learning a lot, and I think the great news, what I'm so impressed by is the whole enormous effort being put behind cellular therapy and the remarkable um, energy and, and, and scope of all the studies that are being done. So I think that um, you know, we'll learn a lot relatively quickly about this as we go forward. Um, but I think, to your point, we do have to be very thoughtful about patient selection. Okay. Certainly in my, in my own experience, um, serious toxicities have been usually in my older patients um, having said that, I have seen some surprises in my younger patients, so I think one has to be careful. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, one cannot argue with what you saw at ASCO uh, in June, which was so uh, remarkable um, from the Cartitude 4 team. Yeah, it would be so amazing to know that ahead of time, and then you could give someone a BCMA by specific antibody and then follow it up with a different CAR-T, with a different target. I mean, this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning with more personalized approaches, and that would be incredible if you had that information ahead of time, and probably you don't right now, but we just need more data. Yes, yes and I, I think I can help a little bit here. I think in the field, the data that we've seen more recently suggests going for BCMA first and then going for GPRC5D afterwards is an algorithm that people are following, but you're quite right, Jen. Is that based upon a really strong scientific rationale? Perhaps um, not quite yet. I think there's some clues, you know, extramedullary disease and so forth, other features which may be guiding those sequences. But I, I do think that um, the success of the antibody proteasome inhibitor, immunomodulator, small molecule platforms provides us with an ability to be very kind of strategic. And so I think, you know, um, Going to target BCMA and then weaving in uh, next-generation targets makes great sense. But I think what's important for patients to hear is that, uh, you know, as we said a little bit earlier, it's very important to take the long and strategic view. And I think that, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are some patients in whom you have to pull, you know, your big guns early because their disease is so aggressive and so uh, difficult to treat. There are other patients who can enjoy success for years uh, and keep these more um, sophisticated and complicated approaches um, in, in reserve and use them when they need them. Mm -hmm. And you talked about accessibility, that they're more accessible. Can you speak to that? Because I know that at a lot of at the academic center facilities, they were getting one or two slots um, for some of these CAR-Ts, and I think that's changed, right? Oh, it most certainly has, particularly in the area of clinical research, that, that for sure, for protocols, and also for the, on the commercial platforms as well. I, I think um, that this has all gotten much better. I think having said that, and the biospecifics have helped tremendously because they've taken a lot of pressure off the system um, so that, you know, we don't have the waiting list that we had to deal with of old, which was so troublesome uh, and, and so, so, so uh, complicated to navigate. I think having said that, um, the, the, the off-the-shelf, 
health construct is really important to embrace. Um, for the majority of my patients, they do not want to come in the hospital. Um, they do not want to uh, face complicated regimens. And if at all possible, they would much prefer everything outpatient. And I think this is incredibly important when one thinks of access to communities, uh, and particularly vulnerable communities. Um, so I think, I think the um, strength of some of the recent research as well has been in the availability of, you know, uh, of, of, of not just infusional strategies or hospitalization requiring strategies, but, but strategies that can be deployed in the outpatient setting. And obviously, um, I think the biospecifics will increasingly move into that area where we don't have to hospitalize patients for step-up dosing. We'll be able to do this as a, an outpatient. But equally, I think, and CAR-T may get there too as well uh, with a strong outpatient component. But I think what's important, uh, Jen, is really to emphasize the value of some of the true outpatient strategies that are, you know, I can see a patient in the clinic uh, one day and start their treatment either that same day or the very next day. And I think those are very important to have in, in the toolbox as well. Right, and that's the difference between, so maybe we want to, want to talk a little bit about um, sequencing or, and also different strategies. So fixed or continuous duration of these bispecific antibodies, especially with what you're talking about, like the infections being an issue um, or other reduction strategies. So do you want to address, like, what, what's happening on the research side to determine, like, do we do bispecific antibodies on a continual basis? Um, there were other studies that were doing two bispecifics together, and another one that I think you had mentioned the ALNUC. Um, I wasn't familiar with that one. So let's dive into bispecifics a little bit more. Yes, of course, Jen. I think, you know, obviously um, the continuous uh, um, administration of these drugs uh, in a relapsed refractory patient in which other options have become exhausted makes complete sense to do mm -hmm. in case they're right. Relapse, but earlier you're absolutely right. The fixed duration do, and I think you're, I appreciate you mentioning it. Beyond, you know, uh, obviously the success of teclistamab, the impact of elranatinab now emerging, and then of course we have elnuc as we call it for short, elnutumab, which is coming shortly on the heels of all of these antibodies, as well as other ones. There is a phenomenal AbbVie platform as well that is showing great promise um, in, in 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 clinical trials. So I think there are lots of these agents coming. I think the important point is you're right, there needs to be convenience and, and fixed duration, um, potentially adding to the benefits. I think um, as we think more about BCMA targeting, this issue of infection is very real. Everyone needs intravenous immune globulin, uh, IVIG. Um, some real-world experiences in Europe um, you know, from expanded access programs were particularly sobering and showed some of the challenges in when you don't have highly sophisticated um, prevention strategies for minimizing infection. Um, there was particularly striking data from some groups in Eastern Europe which were really sobering and, and told us, you know, you've got to be so careful with infection. So, I think um, we need to be aware of, of how we best integrate that into our treatment paradigm. So, yes, you're quite right, Jen. Lots of research looking at this. I suspect we'll be looking at fixed durations because patients would love that anyway, and then perhaps a conversion to oral therapies that can maintain remission in a, in a rational fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so. It, it'll be so exciting to see what happens. And I know there are, I don't know, like six or seven bispecific antibodies. I know Regeneron has one, Abby has one. Um, it's, it's just like expanding exponentially, so it's amazing. 
Do you want to circle back and talk a little bit about Belantamab, Mafidotin, and just provide a little update about that? Because I don't know, um, when we talk about sequencing strategies, if a CAR-T stops working or something like that, can you take a break, do a different type of therapy, and then go back to a BCMA target, maybe like like that, or just provide a, an update on where they're at with their data also? Well, I think, you know, belantinib mafodotin as an antibody drug conjugate exploits BCMA but then delivers a warhead, um, which then triggers immunogenic effects within the disease that then enhances the body's immune system to, 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 to destroy the myeloma. So, and it, and it doesn't carry with it the risks of either cytokine release syndrome, which can be really challenging for patients, particularly with cardiovascular issues and so forth, and it doesn't carry with it the risks of central nervous system injury, which of course can be fortunately rare, but can be can be really serious when they occur. So I think there's real hope um, for this approach, in my opinion, because again, I think it's a matter of you know all hands to the pumps. It's never one versus the other. You know, we'll need all of these agents. The biggest challenge for belantamab was the ocular toxicity. And the really good news there is that we've really figured this out. Dose and schedule really matters. You can dose belantamab mafodotin every um, 6 to 12 weeks now and, and see efficacy, particularly in combination, and lower the dose. This also has implications because you can imagine here, Jen, a patient can come to the clinic once every 6 to 12 weeks even for their infusion, obviously be monitored in the interim, but nonetheless, um, be on an oral agent partnered with this in a way that could be highly convenient and also effective. So th these are exciting uh, approaches that have been refined as we've tried to better figure out how best to use belantamab. But I think we would, would be remiss in suggesting that it has the same sort of power um, at the, in terms of response rates um, that, say, for example, teclistamab has, you know, with a 60 to 70 percent response rate. That's not what we see with belantamab as a monotherapy. It's about half that. But when we combine it with other drugs, that's where we see it show its promise. So when you combine palantamab, mafodotin with oral agents like pomalidomide, important to remember that the Alconquin study in Canada showed a median progression-free survival to palantamab combined with pomalidomide of 24 months, which is remarkable mm -hmm. if you think about it. It's two years, right? Mm -hmm. so, so this really has promise. Now, the challenge has been really more of a regulatory one, um, that the accelerated approval um, for Belantamab Mafodotin had to be um, withdrawn because of the failure of Dream 3 to meet its primary endpoint. This study was a head-to-head -head comparison of Belantamab Mafodotin versus pomalidomide and DEX, and someone had the privilege to develop a pomalidomide and DEX, which I love as a drug. It's a very good platform, and it's great combined with other, other agents. Um, to see POMDEX perform better than we expected was great. Great, um, but obviously, unfortunately, belantamab did not meet its primary endpoint in that particular phase three. But you know, uh, Jen, we've been here before. Uh, Carfilzomib, in its first trial, randomized trial um, after the accelerated approval, actually didn't meet its primary endpoint. Fortunately, Aspire came in shortly afterwards and led to its full approval. And look at Carfilzomib, recognizing its mm -hmm. cardiac. Right. You know, it nonetheless is a game changer. I mean, it's improved survival. It, it's at high risk disease. It's incredibly important. So, so we've been here before. So, I think the next set of generation of studies from um, uh, for Belantamab coming through include um, Dream Eight. 
um, the DREAM studies are the acronym for the studies that uh, Belantum and Baffodotin uses as, as their global effort continues. And I'm hoping that studies like DREAM8, and there's another one called DREAM7, as those come in, they will help be kind of aspire-like and bring uh, Belantumab back uh, to access and approval um, to patients so that we've got access for patients to it. Because certainly um, in, in our own practice, and we're leading trials of Belantumab combined with other novel agents as well as our own expanded access program, we clearly see a role for it. And to your point is, you know, where is it? Well, it can be used, I mean, ideally, if you're going to go for BCMA early, go probably in the appropriate patient for either CAR-T first or bispecific in a young, healthy, well, otherwise fit patient. But in a frailer patient for whom CAR-T or bispecific is really problematic um, for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons appropriate use of Bella with careful ocular care and monitoring as well as a rational combination partner. In our experience, we've seen some remarkably good results. So, so I think, uh, you know, again, yeah. it's an example of why we need all of these agents, not just a, a select few. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I, every myeloma patient might use every drug <laughs> at some point. And let's talk Absolutely. about others in the pipeline. And I, and I know this time goes by so fast, and we have to talk about so much because this is a review. But do you want to talk about the cell mods, like mesigdamide and ibertamide? Absolutely. I'd be delighted because, again, this boils down to um, oral agents that are truly off the shelf and, above all, then provide access, and particularly to vulnerable communities, be they rural, um, frailer, older patients, you know, minority communities who do not want to come into hospital, for example, for logistic mm -hmm. and socioeconomic reasons. So this is, to my mind, a priority, and we're so pleased with how the cell mods have performed. Um, Ibertamide is one to touch on first. It's important to remember these are not, as one colleague said to me, are they glorified imids? They're, they're really not. They are in that sort of broad spectrum of drugs that are immune active uh, and immune modulators in a broad sense. But if you look at them at a molecular level, they're bigger molecules than the classic thalidomide, imidamide, uh, and pomidamide. They're actually bigger in their size. And they engage the whole of the cerebellum E3 ligase uh, complex. So they literally lock in in a way that the immunomodulatory drugs classically don't. And they've been specifically designed to do this, which I think is an enormous um, uh, uh, acknowledgement of the skill of the medicinal chemist at uh, originally Celgene who put this together. It's now obviously under the umbrella of, of cell gene BMS, and essentially mesigdamide and ibertamide engage the cerebral E3 ligase complex, do so powerfully, and trigger what I think is really the key of their activity. They are powerful degraders. They degrade ILOS and ICAROS, which are two key transcription proteins that are, are fundamental switchboards in B-cell pathobiology, and they not only kill myeloma cells, but they also activate the immune system, and, you know, in our team, we've christened mesigdamide CAR-T in a pill, you know, because you can give it, and it's so powerful that it actually can dramatic wow. responses um, in both the tumor and at the same time in the cellular components of the immune system. And by doing that, you get just in an oral therapy, um, really encouraging results. So it was a privilege to be part of the mesigdamide phase one, two team, and we published our data uh, in New England Journal, actually in hard copy just a week ago. So the timing of this podcast, actually, <laughs> Jennifer, in mm, some ways wonderful. is and we got a nice editorial um, with it from the New England Journal and written by a, a super oh, uh, scientist from Australia. 
and uh, Dr. Short really did nail it. I mean, he nailed it. There's some beautiful diagrams for anyone who can have access to it. I'm, I'm happy to send it to you if you like to have them uh, yeah, to share. Yeah, I would love to share it. I would love to. I, I'll happily send those to you, Jen, just because Dr. Short's editor is really very thoughtful. I think the important, and the diagrams are, are lovely. The important point is that, and, uh, you know, all, all sort of, you know, light humor aside, the, the, um, the important point is mesigdomide as an oral therapy worked in triple-class refractory patients, and not only in those in whom um, all of the major drug classes had failed them, but also in patients who had BCMA exposure and, indeed, their BCMA oh. therapies run out of steam. So we were dealing with an oral agent where you do it three weeks on, one week off. The response rate overall was around 41%, and everyone would say, well, to 60 or 70%. Well, it does actually, because you can just take it as a pill, and above all, we're going to be combining it with other agents uh, in the future. And then when we looked at particular subgroups, like the BCMA-exposed patients, in other words, those patients in whom either belantamab had failed them or a bispecific had failed them or actually even a CAR-T had failed them, we were very impressed that the response rate was 50%, uh, Jennifer. So that was really interesting wow. to us because almost suggests that, you know, a reset has happened. And in the context of, um, and I, I want to be careful about that because I'm not sure we know that, but because of the immune mm -hmm. activation, hallmark of this drug, it does seem a reasonable hypothesis um, that in the BCMA-exposed patients, mesigdomide may be even more powerful. Now, ibertamide has also done great things. It's not as potent as mesigdomide, but it's moving earlier, and I want to especially acknowledge my colleague, Sagalonial, who's led that work, and all of the team involved. And with ibertamide, what's happened is we've, we've gone earlier, and it's got none of the side effect profile that can be sometimes a bit of a problem with lenalidomide, which is exciting. And what's really interesting as well um, in, in, in terms of ibertamide is and mesigdomide is that they don't actually, um, they don't seem to have the same risk of second cancers, which is extremely important. So that, I think, is, okay. is, is very relevant because that becomes particularly relevant for ibertamide being used early and as a maintenance drug in the future, we hope. Yeah, Absolutely. And maybe one more, and then we'll go to questions, if that's okay. Um, what about, I know Takeda is working on a drug called TAC-573. Do you want to share what that is and how it works? Yes, TAC-573 is uh, an immunoconjugate, so it works by targeting CD38 and then bringing an interferon warhead along with it. So a little bit like belantamab mafodotin, but a different target, CD38. So it, uh, it's a it's a good drug and it's showing promise and I, I think this targeted sort of approach, Jen, is really important because there are studies ongoing in that and then as you and I have talked about before, um, there are um, you know, other targeted approaches which deliver you know, cytotoxic warheads to where they're supposed to go mm -hmm. and of course we also have, um, you know, we, 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 we have in Europe, it's not unfortunately hopefully back on the research table soon in the US, uh, um, we have of course melflufen which is the targeted way of delivering uh, um, a cytotoxic warhead. So there are lots of excitement there. But pivoting back to TAC-573, uh, it's highly immunogenic. It appears to work very well with gamma interferon. And in the same way as belantamab mafodone may be immunogenic, I think belantamab is, uh, uh, TAC-573 is very promising uh, and well tolerated as well in my experience. Uh, and also for that matter, melflufen is also immunogenic. We've learned that, and I think that's really important to know. Um, so these approaches 
all have an immune basis as part of what they may do, um, but some to varying degrees may be less dependent on the immune repertoire of each patient, which I think, again, pivots back to this key point, Jen, that we're able to um, offer different options to different patients in different settings. Right, and at different stages. And I know, like, for the, the Melsufin example, it worked very quite well in patients who had not had a prior transplant or a recent transplant. So, yes. you know, and for patients all, who aren't going there, maybe that's not well, the case. Thing for Melfluthan, to be honest with you, is the elderly, right? The frail and elderly. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. very well-tolerated drug, and I think there's no mucositis. Patients don't lose their hair. It's a once-a-month infusion, and I don't know if you saw this, but in Europe, it was approved for peripheral infusion now. So it's got uh, uh, even because previously we had to give it by central line. So, so I totally agree with you. I think um, in an older, frailer patient, you know, it, it, has, uh, it has promise as shown in, in the clinical trials that led to its uh, full approval in Europe. Um, but I, I think, obviously, uh, we, we're very hopeful we can get it back on the research agenda here in the U.S. and then move forward. But, um, you know, I, I really, really wanted to emphasize to your point, though, um, Jen, that um, with drugs like TAC573 and Belantamab, where they are so useful, in my opinion, is that they can be sandwiched into the sequence of treatments that we have. Mm-hmm. And we've got to think about how we use our treatments strategically to improve outcomes. So you can think about, you know, you, if you've done a CAR-T and a patient, unfortunately, the CAR-T runs out of steam, how do you... Do you go straight to a bispecific, or can you give them a little bit of a break, give a patient a break to let their T-cells reboot? What can you plop into that therapeutic sequence that will be effective, but at the same time not exhaust T-cells? And so one example might be uh, a TAC-573, or actually, for that matter, you know, depending on your healthcare jurisdiction, melflufen or belantamab methadone. So you see how these things could be reasonably used. Yes, absolutely, and I think that's where the it's such a blessing to have all of this in myeloma. It's incredible what's happening, and thank you for doing the whole um, description because it is so much to cover in one hour. I'm just going to open it up for a few minutes of caller questions, so if you have a question for Dr. Richardson, please press 1 on your keypad, and we have um, a first caller question will be 6251. Six, six, Go ahead. Hello? Go ahead with your question. Hello? Hello, Jen? Oh, I'm here, but I thought we had a... I think they might have hit the button on accident. <laughs> okay. Is is What, I'm, what I'd just like to ask is, um, as we move forward... What are you the most hopeful about in multiple myeloma and in the next, I would say, two years? Well, I think, obviously, what I think we're seeing is that across the spectrum of disease, we're seeing an increasing proportion of patients enjoy excellent disease control for prolonged periods of time. Um, what I'm very hopeful for is that the promise of the bispecifics and the CAR-T treatments will lead to a subgroup of patients being functionally cured, essentially, by these approaches. I also think, by the same token, and it's my strong research focus, that we can 
complement the success of the CAR-T and bispecific space by um, rationally building powerful oral agents, mazigdamide being one example, that can enhance our therapeutic armamentarium to further extend um, disease control in a way in which quality of life above all is also um, uh, conserved uh, or enhanced. Uh, and then at the same time recognize that all of the various drugs that we have, we need. So, um, you know, again, um, small molecules to my mind matter. We touched on Selenexor earlier, and that may be a very, I should have mentioned that actually, as a potential sandwich for some of the strategies we just talked about without T-cell exhausting. So that's very real. I think, Jen, other aspects of this are the ability to have all the available agents to rationally combine and use in select settings because, you know, frailer older patients, to my mind, are an area we need to focus on, actually, because I think whilst these exciting new advances really have promise um, for uh, the majority of patients, there are a significant number of patients who remain perhaps uh, less able to safely receive some of these more intensive treatments and to be able to offer those patients very safe, reasonable, non-toxic approaches um, you know, that are convenient uh, to my mind, it's very exciting. So I, I'm really excited by myelom. It's been a privilege to be part of the research community for the last uh, 25 years or more. And I think at the same time, I'm so excited to see such incredible, exciting younger investigators really leading the charge with you know, cellular therapy, with bispecifics and so on, and really making a difference for our patients. Um, and it's, um, it's also wonderful, frankly, Jen, to have such great advocacy from organizations such as yours uh, and your own leadership of your, your team uh, as a patient who really knows what all this means, um, providing such service to our patients, because that, that to me is, is incredibly important too. Oh well, thank you so much. And you let's for one minute, let's just go back to Selenexor because you mentioned it for deletion seventeen patients earlier in the show. But are there are there other instances or sequencing that you typically use that? Well, I think the important point to realize is that, again, some of the, um, some of the data emerging, for example, at, uh, at this year's IMS, which is next week in Greece, um, we'll be talking about a subset from the Boston trial who are bortezomib naive, and um, they received bortezomib and selenexor in first relapse and enjoyed an amazingly long PFI. I mean, it's, uh, it, it was, it's approaching 30 months, which I think is amazing. So... Um, these weren't necessarily 17p selected patients. So, you know, again, if you said 30 months in CAR-T, they'd all say, oh, yeah, well, that's what we see anyway, isn't it? But <laughs> Selenexor and Bortezomib in first relapse, 28 months median PFI, that's it's not bad, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think totally. there are ways to think about it. And I think, uh, you know, so, so Selenexor, well, I think what's most important about Selly is we've learned to, to give it in a way that's much more tolerable. Um, Selenexor is a tough drug orally if it's given according to the label of twice a week um, and, and, and just with steroids. If you combine it with other drugs and um, give it once a week and go low and slow, as I like to say, um, it really, in my experience, can be very beneficial. In fact, I have a wonderful patient of mine with 17P disease, and he relapsed, unfortunately, after a Plat4 
form of carfilzomib, uh, isotuximab, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. So he got excellent therapy up front. He got stem cell harvested. He wanted to keep transplant in reserve. He, you know, he's got a young family, and he's a very busy uh, 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 executive, so he has a lot on his plate. And we got a wonderful result using um, Selenex or Bortezomib, uh, POM and Dex for him. Because uh, he's 17 be deleted, I should emphasize, and 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 so that is relevant. Um, but we were able to on-ramp him successfully to a CAR T, which we're hoping um, to pursue next month for him. So give you a real example. Lovely guy, lovely family, and um, oh my goodness, five years in, you know, with bad high-risk yeah. disease at the beginning, hasn't needed a transplant doesn't want it because he wants to be, you know, fully functional and not have time away from his family. And we're, we're very hopeful um, that the cell platform he'll be getting next month will uh, take him to the next step. Well, that's a perfect example uh, for all patients. Well, all of us will have to consider a lot of these therapies as we have our life with myeloma. And hopefully we will, one of these combinations and sequences will ultimately relate to a cure. So thank you so much, Dr. Richardson, for everything you are doing in development in the, CAR-T, in the clinical trials on all platforms. It's just unbelievable, and I really look forward to hearing from you and many others at IMS next week. Uh, my pleasure, Jen, and thank you for all you do, and above all, a huge thank you to our audience for taking time out on their Friday afternoon and just wish everyone a lovely weekend. Thanks so much, Jen. Yes, thank you so much, and thank you to our listeners for listening to the Health Tree Podcast for Multiple Myeloma. Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in myeloma research and what it means for you.